Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And today we're going to do a bit of discerning. I am so excited to bring you this conversation that I just had with my friend Alan Parr. You can find him on YouTube, The Beat with Alan Parr. He's got a massive YouTube following, makes great videos about theology and helping Christians discern. Well, he's just written a book called Misled, where he talks through seven distortions or false teachings in the church. And we're going to talk through some of those today. And they might even be some theological ideas that you grew up with. In fact, I shared on the interview with Alan that there were a couple of these false ideas that I actually believed for my whole life until I really learned how to properly interpret the Bible and had to let go of some of these really deep-seated beliefs that I had held that were really not biblical. And so that's something that we hope to bring to you today. Um, Ellen even asked, like, let's keep an open mind because you might find yourself listening today thinking, gosh, I really thought that's what that verse was about. And maybe keep an open mind to considering that maybe, maybe you weren't taught the right thing about this. And so that's really the heart behind today's podcast. There's some great highlights. Alan gave us three C words on how to interpret the Bible properly. That's context, cross-reference, and what was the other one? I wrote it down. Consultation. So, so take a look for those. We talked about that verse, by his stripes we are healed, and how that is so often applied to physical healing. We talk about, is that even biblical? We talk about positive confession that's taught in so many churches that somehow our words have creative power to manifest things in reality. Is that biblical? We talk about the health and wealth gospel, the word of faith movement, and we we just talked through so many wonderful things, and I think you're going to get so much out of this episode today. So without any further ado, here is Alan Parr. Well, Alan, it's so great to have you back on the podcast. I am so excited about your book. It's called Misled, Seven Lies That Distort the Gospel and How You Can Discern the Truth. This is exciting. I've read a good bit of it. I've read the Progressive Christianity chapter, and I've read some of the other sections. And I think you've done such a great job of warning the church about things that can be a little confusing, especially if you've grown up in a particular stream of Christianity, but you're also so gracious about it. And you have this massive, ma I mean, massive YouTube presence, and now you're delving into the the world of books. So what led you to write the book, Misled? I, I mean, you could have gone in so many different directions. For anybody who's unfamiliar with your YouTube, I mean, you you go into so many different areas of theology and Christian living, ethics, what Christians should do in certain situations. What led you to write this book, and uh, what, what gave you the idea? Well, first off, uh, Lisa, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's always a pleasure to collaborate with you and uh, to share a uh, platform with you. I uh, just love what you're doing and always recommend people to your content, so keep up the great work. Um, uh, as far as this book specifically, uh, really um, three things that kind of led me to write this book. Uh, as people will read in the introduction, uh, a little bit about my personal experience. Um, I was in a church, actually kind of similar to your testimony, uh, to be honest with you, that I was uh, brought up in a church in college that um, I thought at the time was a healthy church because I was a younger Christian. I didn't know any better, didn't know uh, how to discern truth from error had no context for being able to distinguish whether things that were going on in the church and things that were being taught from the pulpit were accurate or not until uh, a couple things happened, which I talk about in the book, happened to me, and uh, I was kind of a, 
a bright light in my head that went off and said, something is off with this church. Started studying the word and I realized that many of the things that were um, um, being taught in the, in the church were inconsistent with what I was reading in my Bible in my own private time. And that mm. started kind of triggering these thoughts like, okay, something's going on and it just got worse and worse. And um, thankfully I was able to get out of that situation after about three or four years, but many people are not. And that really leads me to the second reason, which is, um, you know, being on YouTube, as you know, we see emails that come to us. We see people who send us private messages on Instagram, Facebook, uh, they comment on our videos. And there are so many people that will tell me that they are uh, in certain church situations or based on their comments, I can tell that they are misled. They are deceived. Mm. Their, their theology is completely off base based on how they respond in the comment section mm. uh, of my videos. And then finally, um, I've had some close friends and even family members whom I've seen that they've really derailed their lives as a result of getting caught up in a false teaching, uh, unhealthy church environment. And, uh, and so for those reasons and others, I was like, you know, let me write a book that will hopefully save other people unnecessary drama and pain even uh, because they're being led astray by teachings that are not consistent with the scriptures. Well, I'm so glad that you have written it. And one of the things you said a moment ago that really stood out to me, I wrote it down, something is off. I think we can all relate to that. I remember coming out of my experience with the church that would end up identifying itself as a progressive Christian church. And all the while, I would hear things from the pulpit. I would see blog posts and things that were shared by friends of mine that I went to church with. And that was exactly the phrase that would go through my mind. It was this red flag. It was this sense like, I know that something's off about that. But at the time, I had no idea how to articulate a response or even how to refute it, where to even start. And so that's why I'm so thankful for books like this, because false teaching is really prevalent in the church, right? It's crept in from the beginning. In fact, a good bit of the New Testament is devoted to warning Christians against false teaching and false teachers. And some of these false teachings contain a lot of truth, which is what can make them more deceptive. So just give us some general ideas about how to approach false teaching as Christians, because especially in the culture we live in right now, you're just supposed to be nice. You know, you're not supposed to really tell anybody that they're off on this or that, and we're just supposed to kind of live and let live. So it's a, it's a difficult time, I think, for Christians when they do get those red flags to be able to have the courage to speak up and say, hey, I think something is off about this. So, Alan, what's your advice on how to recognize false teaching, especially the type of false teaching that can be wrapped up in so much truth and even be promoted by people who are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're just they're off in a particular theological area? Yeah, well, you know, it's this really comes down to how people interpret the Bible, right? Um, because as you mentioned, um, every one of the false teachings I talk about in my book, um, they're using scripture, right? It, this isn't this isn't false teachings like, um, you know, uh, Muhammad. You know, you need to follow Muhammad. Muhammad is 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 your your prophet, and you need no. I mean, that we know that's not in the Bible, and it's also not straight heresy most of the time where right. The person is coming out and saying, oh, Jesus um, is is not God. You know, I mean, we know if we went to a church like that, the pews would be empty the next day, hopefully, because mm -hmm. people would be like, whoa, OK, I liked you. But like, at least even I know, like Jesus is God. The Bible says that. So this is very subtle how it's being kind of kind of introduced into uh, the church. 
and ultimately into the lives of believers. And so I would encourage people um, to really pay attention to whether the scriptures that people are using to back or to uh, validate their beliefs, are those scriptures being taken out of context or are they uh, used in context? Um, you know, there's a couple of them. I'll give you one example. Uh, you know, one of the verses that many people from the Word of Faith movement uh, love to quote that says, you know, that Jesus died on the cross for, um, uh, for us to be healthy, right, uh, is Isaiah 53, 5. By his stripes we are healed. And, Elisa, I can tell you, I know you've heard that thrown around many times. People will even put scriptures on their Instagram reels or whatever, and people will just say, hey, you know what? Hey, I'm sick. And or my, my husband is, it, is sick or my loved one is ill, but you know what, God, I'm praying and by his stripes we're healed. You'll hear people even praying and yeah. quoting it in their prayers. But here's a perfect example, guys. When you look at the word healed in the book of Isaiah and in the prophets and even throughout the entire Old Testament, the majority, I would probably say 90% of the time when that word healed is used, it is referring to a spiritual healing there has been a relationship that has been broken between that nation, right, nation of Israel or whatever nation, and God. So when God says, I'm going to heal you, Israel, I'm going to heal you, Ephraim, I'm going to heal you, Judah, right, it, most of the time he's not talking about physical. He's talking about the spiritual connection. So I could go on and on, but those are just some of the things that I would encourage people to just really dig deep and pay attention to whether these scriptures that people are using to support their false doctrines are taken out of context. You know, and that one really hits home because my whole life, that's how I would pray. I would pray, by his stripes we are healed, every time there was a sickness or an injury or something like that. And it really wasn't until I learned how to read the Bible in context, use those good tools that we have to figure out what is the direct context of this, what's the broader context, the historical context, what was the original intent of the author. And as I began, that, I'll be honest, Alan, that was a hard one to let go of because it was so deeply ingrained. And that's why I have so much compassion because I know there are people listening today that some of the stuff we're going to talk about, this might be the first time you've heard, well, wait a minute, what? Uh, that's how what I thought it meant my whole life. But when I had to be really intellectually honest about it and look at the direct context of that verse, there really wasn't anything about physical healing in that verse. And and then I began to see, oh, this is about being healed from the sickness of sin, right? May, having that reconciliation with God that Jesus paid for on the cross. And, you know, people might think, well, that's just one verse. And why is it so bad to just think that way? But then you have to think about what that does to the rest of your theology. If you think that in Jesus' atonement, your physical healing was purchased every single time. Well, what happens when your loved one who's a really strong Christian dies of cancer? How do you explain that? Or you get some kind of diagnosis you can't explain. And it can lead to a lot of actual trauma in people's lives when they believe wrong things about what the Bible says. I'm so glad you brought that one up. So, okay, not everybody's a Bible scholar. Not everybody has had the privilege to go to seminary. What strategies do you think would be good for a Christian to be like the Bereans? In fact, I wanted to read this because we all talk about the Bereans. This is found in Acts 17. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness 
examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so the example of the Bereans saying, hey, we're going to hear what you have to say, but we're going to test that against scripture. Well, of course, they did have to also interpret those scriptures. So what are some good tools? How do you, how do you recommend the average Christian go about this type of work? Yeah, well, um, that's a great, great question. And um, obviously, one of the ones I'll give them, I'll give them to you, and they all start with the letter C. So, um, you know, one of them I mentioned, context. And that is something that I think you don't need any other resources. You don't need anything else. Um, for instance, you, earlier you mentioned Isaiah 53 5. We talked about that, right? When you look at the verses that came before that, right? It talks about, um, uh, for he was bruised for our iniquities, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was, um, you know, for our transgressions, our iniquities, for the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we were healed. So like you said, every everything around that verse, iniquities, uh, our peace, uh, being chastised, chastised transgressions, uh, all of these different things. It even also goes on later to say, um, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned our own way. This isn't talking about getting sick, right? right? This is all talking about our relationship with Christ, or excuse me, our relationship with God being broken. So um, context. Uh, the next one that I would give someone would be cross-references, right? This one is a huge one. Um, and this is, you don't have to be a Bible scholar or a seminary student. All you got to do is get um, a, uh, a resource like the Treasury of Scriptural Knowledge or any great study Bible should have a column down the middle or on the sides of your study Bible with extra verses that many people pay normally no attention to. But if you just pay attention to those, it's going to give you other scriptures that will help shed light on a scripture. So for instance, uh, Hebrews 6 and 4 through 6, that classic passage where people say, oh, you can lose your salvation because it says here that, you know, for those who have been enlightened, uh, for those who have partaken of the good word, those who have been uh, shared in the good word, partaken of the Holy Ghost, uh, for those, uh, they won't, uh, what does it say? They, they won't be able to be, uh, if they fall away, right, they won't be able to be renewed to repentance for they'll be crucifying Jesus all over again. So people read that, like, oh my goodness, I can lose my salvation. Okay, but wait, that verse is very, very unclear. Like there's verse, there's words in that verse that don't typically refer to salvation. So you say, okay, I'm not going to build my entire theological position on how we're saved based on a verse that's unclear. Let me look at the rest of the scriptures and look at some clear verses on salvation because I know the Bible can't contradict itself. So therefore, if this one is over, over here is unclear and these 30 over here are clear about what they say about salvation, then these 30 will help me understand this one. And then the last one is consultation. Like many of us, we read the Bible and we say, oh, that's from God. I know that's from God. It must mean this. But we never check and see whether a commentary God has given us in the body of Christ. We are, we have so much information available to us. I encourage every single person watch this video to get yourself a set of good commentaries, because if you think the Bible means one thing, always check it against several different commentaries and see if God has shown other biblical scholars the same thing you think it means. Now, that's a lot, but um, that's a short list of Bible study methods. Yeah, and that's so good about the commentaries, too, because 
A lot of times what I think people don't consider when they're reading the Bible is, and I've heard Christians kind of almost poo-poo the scholarship uh, world or scholars, like, oh, that's just intellectual stuffy. But, you know, you wouldn't actually be able to read the Bible in English if it wasn't for good scholarship and great scholars translating that Bible for you. And so what I think about with with, uh, commentaries and why they're so important, especially with verses that are hard to interpret, is that even in the translation process, scholars have to consider the immediate context to even know which Greek word is going to fit best. And it's just like in English, how we have uh, one word that might have several different connotations and even change the meaning of the sentence with the same word. You have to consider the context. So scholars sometimes know that stuff better than we do because we, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not a Greek scholar. I can't read the Bible in Greek yet, although I want to one day. That's kind of a goal I have. But we, we do depend on faithful Bible scholars to help us with some of these things that are difficult to understand. But I love that cross-reference is so important in context. We want to interpret Scripture in light of of Scripture. So the difficult passages, you don't just base your theology on that. You cross-reference it with what the Bible has to say about that from cover to cover. That's so good. Um, Okay, so I love that in your book, you actually have a section on progressive Christianity. I always get very excited when other people are talking about progressive Christianity. And so, of course, I've written about it and talked about it a whole bunch, but I'd love to get your take on it. Uh, as you've encountered it, because I'm just one person. I've done my best to analyze the movement as I have studied it and as I've engaged with its materials. But what what would you say, like, where did this all start, progressive Christianity? And if you, in your own words, could summarize the fundamentals of progressive Christianity, how would you talk about it? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I feel like I'm I'm talking to uh, <laughs> uh, the expert or the authority in 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 this area since you have so much uh, you know you have so much wisdom. You've done a lot of work on this, but um, yeah, if I had to you know summarize, um, well, let me just go back. Uh, so from what I understand, it's it's the progressive Christianity seems to have this idea that um, the culture has progressed on certain things that maybe the world used to at one point deem as um, immoral or um, off limits or taboo. You know, 200 years ago, if a woman wanted to get abortion, I'm sure 99% of the world would be like, oh no, that's that's pretty gruesome. Like you're gonna have somebody cut something out of your body. Like no, right? Or if two men wanted to get married, um, two women wanted to get married, um, even if you didn't believe in God at that time, 200 years right. ago, I bet you the majority of people would probably say, that's not natural, right? But as the culture has shifted, um, unfortunately, many Christians have shifted along with the culture, and then therefore there's a group now who, uh, God bless them, we're praying for them, uh, but uh, they uh, consider themselves Christian, progressive Christians, and it's the idea that, hey, God has progressed on these moral issues, such as abortion, LGBTQ, uh, and maybe a, whole, a few of other, a few other ones, um, and so, therefore, if God has doesn't really feel the same way about these things, or or you know, the Bible should be interpreted differently on some of these things uh, compared to the way we've always interpreted the Bible. We need to see things a little differently through a different lens. Then, therefore, Christians need to kind of come on board, and we need to progress along with that. And so, um, that can be very, very dangerous uh, because. God has not changed his perspective on these particular issues. So what are some of the things that um, you might see that might give you, you know, red flags or pauses? Um, You know, one would be a low view of Christ. And obviously I'm saying this 
with the understanding that not every single person who says they're progressive Christian would hold to every single one of the things that I'm saying. Right. I'm just speaking more in general terms. Uh, this is probably what you can expect on a general level. A low view of Christ, right? Which is, hey, Christ, um, he wasn't really God. He really more so was our example. He was a good teacher. He was a, a good moral leader. And he really came to show us um, how we should live our lives, how we should love other people, how we should treat other people. And that's really the big thing that we need to glean from Jesus' life, right? And obviously, this is why, like I said, and like you said, many of these teachings are very subtle because that is true, right? It is true that he came to show us what it was like to treat people and to love people, yes, but that's not only reason why he came, and that's not the totality of who he is. Yes, he's 100% man, but he's also 100% God. And that's the part of the scriptures that many progressives like to kind of pull out is this idea that, you know, he was 100% God or, uh, you know, another another one that we'd want to look at would be um, how they interpret scripture, maybe a lower relaxed view of scripture. Um, it seems to me that it's more of a kind of a pick or choose which parts of the scripture that kind of align with my lifestyle. I want to have Christ and I want to have my way, right? So mm. if there's portions of the Bible that I'm not necessarily liking because it's going to force me to change who I believe God has created me to be, I'd rather just rip those pages out of the Bible and say, oh, that's just antiquated. It doesn't apply to me anymore. But this other part about Jesus loving people and being inclusive and accepting people from all walks of life, oh yeah, we embrace that part of the Bible. So let's kind of keep that in. Uh, and there's several more, but I'll, I'll, I'll say one more. Um, and that's this idea of inclusivism. Uh, there seems to be this idea that um, that we want to include everyone. Once again, this is where things can get really <laughs> dicey because we should be inclusive of everyone in terms of welcoming them into our church. That's not necessarily what they're doing. They're being inclusive in terms of their beliefs, their behaviors, um, you know, even other belief systems like, hey, you know, Christ is for us. But, you know, if you believe that, you know, um, uh, Islam is the way to to get to God, then, you know, hey, you can worship with us and and, and your way works for you. Our way works for us. Kind of like your book talks about, you know, you live your truth. I'll live my truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there seems to be a lot of that going on. The last thing I'll mention, guys, is just um, look out. If, you, if, you're out of a if you're on a church website and you see the letters O-N-A, this church is an open and affirming, right? That's a red flag. Okay, we want every church to be open, right? Yeah, you're homosexual, you're LGBTQ, you're open to stay here and worship with us. We want you to. And affirming is the is the problem, right? I'm not going to be open and affirm your lifestyle, and that's what many of these churches are doing. So, um, yeah. I know I've talked a lot about it, but but I mean I'm pretty passionate about this as I know you are. What yeah, are your no, that was that's a great summary because it really does seem to be that progressive Christians will reject fundamentals when it comes to certain theological points. For example, they're going to they don't want to be a fundamentalist when it comes to holding to maybe the deity of Jesus or the resurrection or basically saying we can't agree to disagree about these things. We all have to believe these things. But they are very fundamentalist when it comes to morality as you've mentioned uh, as culture changes. There are sort of fundamentals that progressives all align with 
culturally speaking and morally speaking. And um, I wrote this down when you said this because you said they want to rip out parts of the Bible. And lest anybody think you're being you're exaggerating or being rhetorical, this is really quite literally what Nadia Boltz Weber wrote about in her book Shameless, where she talks about one of her parishioners who was struggling with homosexuality and basically in this cathartic act, she ripped out all of the pages of the Bible that spoke about homosexuality and threw them into the fire and then wow. ripped out the Gospels and then threw the rest of the Bible into the fire and clutched the Gospels to her heart. And Nadia Boltzweber basically praised this woman for thinking for herself and for getting rid of the parts. So we're not even being, you know, we're not even exaggerating or being rhetorical when we talk about this, really quite literally what, what can end up happening in those progressive circles. And speaking of even churches getting rid of parts of the Bible that doesn't really line up with their quote-unquote truth— um, this is a tough point of conversation to have, isn't it? Because really what Christians are claiming, all of the claims that you're making today, all of the claims that I make on this podcast are worthless if objective truth doesn't exist. And that's really where a lot of this battle is today. So how can we answer other people who might call themselves Christians, but they reject the idea of objective truth? They might say, well, I believe in Jesus, but you can live your truth and I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. We're taking a quick break so I can tell you about one of today's sponsors, and that is Good Ranchers. There are so many reasons I love Good Ranchers because it's American meat delivered right to my door. I put it in the freezer and then pull something out when it's time to thaw it out for dinner. Just this week, we've made chicken marsala with those better than organic uh, triple trimmed chicken breasts from Good Ranchers. We also love to make things like burgers and tacos in our house, and that's where the ground beef is great, but also even just taking the flank steak and cooking that up and shredding it out for tacos is so good. We've done that too. So I want to tell you about Good Ranchers because did you know that right here in the USA, the FDA has just approved lab-grown chicken? This has just been approved by the FDA. But if you're anything like me, I, I really am not interested in lab-grown chicken. I want high-quality real meat that I can trust, and that's where Good Ranchers comes in. This is high-quality, no antibiotics, no hormones, all grass-fed beef, better than organic chicken, all raised and harvested right here in the United States. You can use my code, ALISA, to get $30 off your box of pasture-raised protein instead of paying more for petri dish protein that you're going to find in the store here real soon. So again, go to GoodRanchers.com. Use my code, ALISA, for $30 off your first box. That's goodranchers.com. Use my code, Elisa. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's a difficult one. Um, I just think that, you know, we have to, we have to be firm on what we know is the truth as Christians. And I think that that's one of the things that, um, uh, I think it breaks my heart the most is that, mm -hmm. Um, I think many of us, we shy away from standing on the truth and expressing the truth uh, and being unashamed because many of us are actually not for sure mm -hmm. if what we believe is true. We call ourselves Christians, but as you and I know as being apologists, growing apologists, right, um, is that there are many people who say that they're Christian, but if you're unsure about what you believe, it's going to be very, very easy for someone else to come alongside you and convince you that what you believe is not actually true. Because mm. 
many people from different cult groups and um, and even within Christianity, they have very, very strong, convincing arguments for why they believe what they believe. And people are masters at twisting the Bible, mm. make it say what they want it to say. I'll, I'll give you one uh, real quick. And, and this, I did a video on this a few years ago. Um, there was a, oh, I'm be careful. There was someone that I knew from my past who was a very, very influential man. Um, and he was a homosexual pastor. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Uh, he struggled with that. And um, I remember him telling me like it was yesterday, Lisa, he took me in his office and he tried to use the scriptures in Romans chapter one to convince me that homosexuality was not a sin. Mm -hmm. And the way he did it was he basically said, Romans chapter one says that um, uh, if you exchange that which is natural for that which is unnatural, right, uh, then you'll be turned over to a debased mind. I might have quoted it perfectly, but the whole point yeah. is that, um, you know, it, you know, he says that this passage is talking about people who exchange what is natural for that which is unnatural. And he would basically say, well, this passage is not talking to people who homosexuality was always natural for them. Right. Yeah. So if I if so, so this can't be talking about me because I never made the conscious choice to exchange what was once natural for me, i.e. my affection or uh, attraction for women to that which is unnatural, my now attraction for men, right? Um, it's not me. This is what the pastor was saying. Right, right. So make sure everybody don't take yeah, any no, sound yeah, Keep clarifying because people <laughs> jump in late and be like, what's Alan talking right. about? Right. What in the world is he talking about? So my point is, guys, is that you can twist the Bible to make it say what you want it to say. And that's why we as Christians need to have good, good, good apologetics and good hermeneutics to say, uh, no, that, that's, I'm sorry, that's a stretch. Mm -hmm. I remember reading an article probably maybe 10 years ago, maybe eight or nine, 10 years ago. And I can't remember exactly who the author was. It was a very similar kind of scenario where they were arguing that when God said male in his image, he created them, male and female, he created them in his image. What they were saying is, hey, that means that if you are transgender, you are you are the fullest expression of the image of God in one person because male and female in the same body would be the fullest expression. So in other words, transgender is a higher kind of identity and, and they were using scriptures. So it's so important that we know that, and, and this is where I think objective truth comes in, because if we can just interpret the scripture any way we want to, you can make the Bible say whatever you want to, as you've just articulated and as I've just articulated with those verses. And that's why it's so important to know that there is an objectively true and correct interpretation of the Bible. Now, we don't always get at it perfectly, but that should be our goal. Our goal should be to discover what is the objective uh, interpretation, the right one, because there is a right one and there are a lot of wrong ones. And like I said, we don't always do it perfectly, but that sh really should be the goal. So, okay, we, we kind of stuck our hand into a hornet's nest with the by your stripes, very healed verse. Let's do it again. Let's talk about tongues. So, um, you know, Christians argue about tongues all the time, and I want all my charismatic listeners to relax right now. We're not going to tell you tongues is wrong. <laughs> That's not where we're going. Right, right. But what I do want to talk about, though, is something you do address in your book, which I thought you did a really good job with when uh, there are certain streams of churches who will say that tongues is evidence of your salvation or it's evidence that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. So talk about tongues and how, how have we been getting that wrong in some areas? 
Yeah, well, I love what you said, um, you know, Lisa, we want to be very sensitive and loving to people who might see things differently. So if you are someone who is charismatic or Pentecostal and you do uh, believe that you have the gift of speaking tongues or praying in tongues, um, this book, I want to encourage you. All right. This book is not a book that you're going to want to burn whenever you read it. It's <laughs> not one of those things was like, how dare he say I, I, I can say for me personally, I can't speak for Elisa, but I'm not a cessationist, right? Um, I am not one who believes that this, the gifts have ceased. I don't see enough biblical evidence to prove that. Although I don't personally uh, speak in tongues myself or praying tongues, but I don't, I'm, I don't believe the gifts have ceased. So I don't make that argument at all in this book. But what I do want to talk about, guys, is how the gift is misused. And I just hope and pray that you hear my heart on this. Um, you know, by elevating the gift of tongues and making it something that you feel like every single Christian can and should do, um, can really create some very, very um, damaging situations for the body of Christ. Because what you might be doing, if you're teaching this, or you don't even realize it, is that you're indirectly creating a, a two-class system of Christianity. Mm -hmm. You have the haves and the have-nots, or as I like to put it, you have the varsity Christians and the JV <laughs> Christians, right? I mean, you know, you're a varsity Christian if you can pray in a heavenly language that only you, only God understands because you're able to have some secret connection with God that, that bypasses your human spirit that prays some perfectly pure prayer to God. But if you can't do that, you're missing out. And you are missing out on a special power that God wants you to have. Guys, the Bible does not teach that anywhere. It doesn't teach that. And there's no verse in the Bible that says you are better off, right, uh, if you speak in tongues or pray in tongues. Now, yeah, the Bible talks about you edify yourself, but that doesn't mean you have more power. Matter of fact, the Bible actually says the contrary. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, by his divine power, he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. That's spoken to the body of Christ in general. We have everything that we need. The Bible also says that we have different gifts and we can't choose our gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and verse 11 says that um, this, the Spirit distributes these gifts as He wills. So if, if tongues is a spiritual gift, we don't get to choose it, right? We don't get to choose it any more than I'd get to choose the gift of shepherding or the gift of mercy or the gift of teaching the Bible. No, these gifts are given to us by the Holy Spirit. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the, the, the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about that because the big one is this idea that if you don't speak in tongues, um, either A, you're not saved, which is the more radical view. And I think that's been debunked in many circles. Mm -hmm. But in some of the other circles, it's like, hey, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not giving evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, I just want you, I'm going to look straight into this camera. I want you to really think about that. All right. I want you to think about the fact that do you believe that speaking in tongues is the only evidence of the Holy Spirit? What about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, right? What about being empowered by the Spirit? What about the conviction of the Spirit? What about um, uh, the guidance of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit? Uh, there's so many ministries of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, um, that have nothing to do with speaking in tongues, right? So make sure that we're not highlighting or elevating this experience and making a blanket statement to say, if you don't have this experience, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And the last one I'll give you is Ephesians 1.13. It says, and I wish I could quote, I have my Bible over here, but it says basically, um, uh, 
in the you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise when you believed and heard the word of truth. I think I got that reversed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise when you heard the word of truth and believed. So what does the verse clearly say? You heard the word, you're a sinner, say you need saved by grace. You believed, and in that moment you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It doesn't have any, say anything about speaking in tongues. That's so good. I so appreciate how you articulated all of that. I just say a hearty amen to all of that. It's such good clarifying teaching for uh, just for everybody who's listening. So let's talk about positive confession. There are some churches out there that teach almost in a very similar way to the New Age would teach manifestation, um, that you can sort of speak things into existence or that your prayers have some sort of creative power to manifest something into reality that wouldn't otherwise be manifested. So what does the Bible teach about that? Does it teach positive confession? Um, what verses are people using? Why is that, in your view, a dangerous thing to teach? And I would agree with that, by the way, that it is a dangerous thing to teach. Yeah, well, you know, once again, this is this is where this is where things get really, really. Guys, this was a hard book to re to write because there are so many nuances to this. So, in one aspect, you could say positive confession is biblical, right? So, if I well, let me be careful. Let me define <laughs> that because somebody could somebody could take that sound bite. What I mean is this. If I am reciting affirmations like I am forgiven, I am loved, I am accepted, I am chosen, um, I am redeemed, that's positive confession. I am confessing positive things over my spirit that come from the scriptures and are properly interpreted from the scriptures. So affirmations in and of themselves aren't necessarily evil or wrong as long as they're interpreted correctly from the scriptures. In that aspect, yeah, it's good. But what we're talking about is this idea that many people from the Word of Faith movement teach and promote is that you and I are little gods. Mm -hmm. And once again, going back to what you mentioned earlier, um, this idea that we were created in the image of God. So guys, this is exactly what I mean about context and proper hermeneutics, right? Many people from the Word of Faith movement will say that that verse in Genesis that talks about we were created in the image of God would suggest that, hey, and even, even, uh, even, even, I'll just say his name, even teachers like Creflo Dollar and, and others like Joyce Meyer will say things like, well, yeah. if a dog, two dogs get together, what do they create? A dog. Two cats get together, what do they create? Cats. Horses get together, what do they create? Horses. If God gets together and creates something, what does he create? Little gods. And that's literally a direct quote from a Creflo Dollar sermon, a direct quote, right? And so from that, the idea is that if God created the world with his words and he had the power to speak things into existence, i.e. the universe, if we're created as image, we have the power to create things as well. Guys, think about that. That's just not biblically accurate, nor is it even consistent with our own personal experience. Mm. Try telling somebody who has not been able to conceive and they've mm. had miscarriages, try telling that woman, speak a child into existence. And if you speak it, you can have, guys, we got to stop this stuff, right? Like that's just not biblically accurate. Anyway, what are your thoughts? I could go on and on about, no, about that's that. That's so good because I do think there are streams of of the church. And I, and, and I want to just reiterate someone who might be falling for this, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean that there aren't 
brothers and sisters in Christ that are falling for these things. This is, I love that you kind of make that made that distinction earlier. If, if you're in a church that's teaching you Jesus is not God or he hasn't been resurrected, that's a different category. That's heresy. That's not um, Christianity that we're talking about anymore. But there can be error within the true church. And so people might be falling for this idea that your words have this creative power. And um, and I think you just really touched on the danger of that and just the harm that that can bring there at the end when you, you brought up the example of the woman who can't conceive. Well, is she supposed to just speak that into existence? And this also, I think, applies to where we started with the whole idea that Jesus' atonement sort of um, purchase your physical healing here on earth, because then what that leaves people with is that, okay, let's say I get sick. Let's say that I am dying or I even die of of some disease. Well, how do you make sense of that? If your theological belief is that that was purchased through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, well, then it has to be that you didn't have enough faith, or maybe there's some unrepentant sin in your life. So in other words, it's exactly. your fault. And your that fault. can end up gaslighting people spiritually, because I've known great saints of God that have died of cancer, who yes. praised God and served him all the way to the end, uh, and, and were faithful examples of Christians. And it's just, um, it can just be so harmful to teach something. And I know people don't mean to. I know when somebody teaches this, they want to encourage. They're wanting to do something that will make people's lives better. But if we don't think it through all the way to the end, it can end up being quite harmful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you mentioned that because um, uh, in my book, I, I guys, I, I tried to write the book as... Um, part fiction and part nonfiction, where every chapter starts off with a fictional story of a, uh, of a character I've named Jaron. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and essentially Jaron is trying to find a church. And every time he tries to find a healthy church, he runs into another one of these false teachings that derails his life. And um, some of these stories from Jaron's life are actually either m- my stories or, or stories of friends that I have. And and exactly what you just said, Elise says, I have a I, one of the stories in there, spoiler alert, um, is about a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine, as a matter of fact, who um, lost his sister to cancer. Mm-hmm. And he had everybody praying for her, trusting God for her healing. Um, and she passed away. And, you know, he was left with this feeling that it was his fault. And it took mm-hmm. years for him to truly accept and understand that his theology was off. Because he blamed himself like, man, if I only had prayed more, if I had more faith, then my sister would still be here. And that's oftentimes why this thing is so damaging. And then you start blaming God. Yeah. See, first you blame yourself and then you start realizing, well, God, if you promised that my sister was to be healed based on what Jesus did on the cross and she didn't, then that means you failed me. Yeah. And that's where we have to make sure we're careful with our theology. That's really good. And sort of that positive confession thing is a part of the grander scope of word of faith and even prosperity gospel. I know you talk about the prosperity gospel in your book. How would you describe it? Because we've sort of hit on the one that, you know, people tend to say health and wealth. We've talked about the health aspect, but there's also this wealth aspect. And I probably told this story on the podcast before, but I was attending a church in uh, New York when I was living in Manhattan. And there was a prosperity preacher that came to our church one time. And my church wasn't a prosperity church, but I don't know where the connection was, but this guy just came to preach one time and he brought this BMW into this really poor neighborhood that where we were doing our ministry and where the church was. And he basically told all the people in the church, 
I'm, I parked my BMW out front because I want you to know what God has for each and every one of you. You need to believe God for your private plane. You need to believe God for your luxury car. And, and I remember just with all the people that I was in relationship with, and these were a lot of them fairly new Christians. A lot of the younger kids had come out of the gang, uh, gang situations and all sorts of different things. And it, they were so confused by a lot of this. And that was tied in also with the health message. But talk about the prosperity gospel and um, in what what ways is the message of that gospel inconsistent with the Bible? Well, it's a dangerous uh, message because it preys upon, um, I would say, 99%, if not 100% of humans' most two most greatest desires. Ooh. We all want to be healthy and we all want to be wealthy. I mean, I don't know if any of us would be would meet anyone in the world that would not want those two desires for themselves and their loved ones, right? We all want a healthy, pain-free, suffering-free uh, sickness-free life, and we would all love to have more money than we could ever imagine that we could spend, like King Solomon, right? We would all love that. And so uh, in, its, in its most basic sense, uh, the, the prosperity gospel, which is your false gospel, which is another gospel <laughs> based on your, your book, um, is, is this idea that, as you mentioned earlier, um, included in the work of Christ, there are some promises and these promises are include um, a life of prosperity and a life of um, of, uh, of health, if you will. And uh, but the key is that these things are available to every single Christian. The key to unlock this secret vault of blessings that God has already given you. It's kind of okay. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like having a gold mine in your backyard, like. 50 feet deep. It's there. It's been there since you've had the house. It's been there since the beginning of time. You may not know that it's there, but uh, it's there, right? And in order for you to get there, you have to dig. And if you don't get that gold, you just haven't dug deep enough to get it because it is there. And it's yours. It's on your property. Uh, it, it belongs to you. That's the idea. Um, if you dig, if you have enough faith, you can unlock the secret vault of blessings that are available to you. And uh, this can be very damaging. Um, as you mentioned, it can uh, uh, create false guilt, make people feel guilty when they shouldn't feel guilty. Um, but, you know, it, it can create a transactional relationship with God, mm -hmm. which is this idea that, okay, God, I gave this money to you. So therefore, um, I sowed a seed. Therefore, I should receive the same financial reward tenfold back, a hundredfold back. You have a lot of prosperity preachers are teaching this. Sow a seed and God's going to get it right back to you, right? So now this creates, I want to give to God, not primarily because of what he's done for me, but because I'm expecting like a return on my financial investment. I'm expecting a 10% return, uh, you know, um, so there's that. But the biggest thing, Elisa, is that it, it creates, it reverses the roles, right? Um, we exist to do what God tells us to do. Mm. God doesn't exist to do what we tell him to do. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the biggest problem with the prosperity gospel is that it reverses the focus. We should be focused yeah. on getting in the word and saying, God, what is that you have told me to do? Let me focus on that. Let me just do what you've already told me. Not let me try to get manipulate you with my faith and my prayers to, to do what I am telling you to do. And that's yeah. very difficult. Man, that's so good. That it's it almost creates a works-based approach to salvation, which so many of these false teachings do. They get the focus off of 
grace, which is unmerited favor. You don't deserve it, but God offers you this free gift anyway. And it gets it onto what you need to be doing, what you're failing to do. And I, I love that you put that as like a transactional approach. I gave you this much money. I want this return as if it's economics or something simple like that. But a lot of times that whole stream can also be compound. The authority of what they're saying can be compounded by people claiming to be prophets and, and sort of... Um, I guess, putting all of those teachings together under the banner of, look, I'm God's spokesperson. So, And you, you, you talk about that in the book, too. You talk about modern-day prophets and what they're claiming. Talk about that a bit and how that connects with some of that those greater issues of the positive confession and the health and wealth and word of faith. Yeah, it's all tied together. I mean, all of these things are many, many times are all tied together, right? So perfect example, if someone claims to be a prophet, what they're doing is they're saying, I have heard from God and I have the authority to speak on behalf of God, right? And so um, if someone claims to be a prophet and then they say, hey, God has shown me that if you unlock your faith today that your loved one is going to be healed, or if you unlock your faith today, there's a financial blessing that's coming to you, then what do we assume? If you're a younger Christian and you don't know any better, which that's why we create these resources and books, and that's why we write our books and we have our YouTube videos, but if you don't know any better, you're going to assume that what this prophet has said is true because he just said he heard from God. He said he's a prophet. So that means automatically there's respect that's just there based on the title, right? Um, and so it's all tied together because oftentimes um, these prophets are communicating these messages. But, you know, I talk about this in the book where I say um, <laughs> people who are prophets today, modern day prophets, they are vastly different than the prophets in the Bible times, right? If you just read the Old Testament, you'll notice that the prophets were not liked, they were hated, they were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were persecuted, um, they were put in stocks, they were put in cisterns, uh, they, were, uh, they were not liked. They mm -hmm. were told to leave um, because generally they were bringing a message to people that they didn't want to hear. They were telling people, stop bribing people uh, stop oppressing the poor, stop uh, with your scales that are not uh, weighed properly, stop uh, idolatry, um, stop child sacrifice, stop these things, and stop worshiping other gods. And people didn't want to hear that. And so these prophets were not popular. It's exact opposite today in most services where there's a prophet that comes. Mm -hmm. Think about it. Like, yeah. if we know that a prophet is going to come why would 10,000 people rush to some sort of crusade center to hear a prophet tell them about their sin? They know that's right. not what they're going to hear. That's right. They're going there yeah. to hear that there's a blessing that's going to be coming over their family and their house and their life and their finances and their, their body or whatever. And this is very, very different than what we see in the scriptures as it relates to how prophets operated and how they were treated. Hmm. That's a great point. Well, with the time we have left here, I'd love for you to encourage our audience. What are you hoping that readers of your book will take away and uh, just glean from what you've put so much work into? Yeah, you know, I, I hope and pray. You alluded to it a little bit earlier, earlier Elisa. Um, um, I hope and pray that people would read this book. My deepest prayer is they read it with an open mind. Listen, mm -hmm. guys, I can tell you that there was a time in my life where I was convinced that what I was listening to from the pulpit and what I was experiencing in church, you couldn't tell me that it wasn't real, it wasn't genuine, it wasn't scriptural, it wasn't biblical, because I was convinced of it. 
until I became enlightened and until I understood basic principles about Bible interpretation, things like that. So I want to encourage you to get this book and read it with an open mind. Maybe you've been taught certain things from your church or your pastor that you've held near and dear. These are your sacred things. Oh, no, trust me. I know this. It works. I've, I've applied. Okay. I pray that you, as I do in my videos, I included a lot of scripture all right, in this book, um, uh, misled. I've created a lot of scripture, put a lot of scriptures in here uh, for you to cross-reference. I pray that you would study them with an open mind. And I hope that questions start to go off in your mind, like, hmm, there's a point. I never really thought about it that way. Wow, he makes a good argument. I'm have to really think this through. And the second thing I hope and pray that it does is I hope it, that it instills conversations. I hope that there's something in here that maybe it's a page, maybe it's a chapter, and it's it's so thought-provoking that you have to take a screenshot with your phone and you text it to your friend and say, hey, I know we go to the same church and I know pastor said this, but what are your thoughts on this? Because this, this guy, Alan Parr, he sends something here that's a little different than what we're... And I hope and pray that it, it creates conversation. And ultimately, I pray that you're led to um, the truth. That's great. Alan, let our audience know where they can connect with you. Talk about, you've got this Let's Equip Academy going on. Talk about all the things you want to connect people with, with your ministry. Yeah, yeah. So we have um, a wonderful biblical literacy course. It's called the Bible Accelerator. You can find that on um, on our website, specifically uh, uh, letsequip.com forward slash Bible Accelerator. Um, yeah, that's just a course that's going to teach you a little bit more about those C's, that context, culture, con uh, cross-references, consultation, as well as a host of other things that you'll learn there. Uh, but if people just want to learn a little bit more about me uh, and what's going on in my life, uh, they want to book me to speak or whatever it is, they can go to my website, alanpar.com. Of course, my YouTube channel is probably the easiest way for them to consume uh, my content, uh, which is just The Beat by Alan Parr. Uh, and if they want to pick up a copy of the book, I know there's a lot of a lot of calls to action here, but I'm sure Lisa will put the link below. But it's just misledbook.com. Super simple. We made it very easy for you. And uh, we're actually giving away a free biblical literacy course for anyone who purchases this book. You'll get a free course that will give you uh, just our way of saying thank you for supporting us by buying the book. Oh, that's great. Well, I want to thank my guest, Alan Parr, for coming on the show today to talk about this great resource, Misled. You can pick it up wherever books are sold and check out his ministry. And I want to thank Southern Evangelical Seminary for sponsoring this podcast. SES is where I am currently a student looking forward to my fall classes. They approach every class with a three-pronged approach, apologetics, theology, and philosophy. So go to ses.edu slash Elisa. You can download a free ebook there. And as we pursue Christ, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time.